Good morning. I want to thank you for braving the elements and uh, making your way to one of our campuses. We appreciate your willingness to come out in such inclement weather. Today we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll look at verses 1 to 8. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at one of the difficult passages, there are many of them in 1 Corinthians. We ask, Lord, that you would instruct our heads, transform our hearts, that we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. We ask, for Father, that your inspired and errant word would be our authority. And even when we find that your word is difficult to obey, that we would always acquiesce to the perfection of your word and bow our will to your way. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. It was October of 2018 when a group of elders and a now disgraced senior pastor sued former elders and a Christian publication. They sued these former elders and a Christian publication in order to keep them from revealing what was really happening within the church. The account really goes back several years. At the time, probably back in 2015, a minority group of elders in a very large church began to continue to hear rumor after rumor that their senior pastor used very foul language, that he regularly would go into the offices of his co-workers and threaten them and threaten their employment. We later learned that he actually even hired a hitman, perhaps, to take out a son-in-law he didn't like. The police got involved. We now know, even released last week by this church, that he misappropriated over a three-year period $3.1 million. How do you lose $3.1 million and no one knows about it? That's unbelievable to me. And so we have this period of time when a minority group of elders are speaking to the majority group and saying, we have a pastor that has no accountability. He is out of control. We need to do something about it. But the minority group wants to do nothing about it. And in fact, the, the majority group actually forces the minority group out. Eventually, the minority group has followed all the steps of Matthew 18 that they're allowed. They're stopped at every turn. They are approached by a Christian publication. And together, they're about to publish what's going on in the church. It's at that moment that the senior pastor and the now majority elder group that's still intact sue the minority elders, former elders, and the Christian publication, they sue them to keep them silent. Now the interesting thing about it is that the senior pastor knows about 1 Corinthians 6. He knows about the very text that we will look at today. He knows that it says that brothers cannot sue brothers in a secular court. So he releases a paper, I've read it, on a higher understanding of Scripture. That's an odd phrase all by itself. And so he looks at this passage, but he says this passage needs to be understood in light of Matthew 18, a passage on 
church discipline. And in light of John 8, very bizarre, it's one about demon possession. And Romans 13, 1 to 7, which is about how the church interacts with government, none of them really give insight as to why a Christ follower would sue another Christ follower. In my way of thinking, if you wanted to bring other passages to bear, we might go to passages like, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I the Lord will repay. Or maybe Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 to 40, which says this, You have heard that it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I think scripture is saying over and over again, if you're going to be wronged by a brother, don't stand up for your rights. Better to be taken to the cleaners than to take your court case before secular magistrates. That's what Scripture seems to teach. Well, I think this former pastor understands that. And so he actually reinterpreted 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1-8. to He noticed in verse 2 that Paul uses the word trivial, and he makes a wrong assumption. He says, oh, what's going on? is that one brother has a very trivial excuse for a lawsuit against another brother. It's like something that's small. It's something that's insignificant. It's something that should be swept under the rug. And yet he makes it a big deal, and he goes to the courts. And what Paul is saying is this. If you have a small thing, don't go to the courts. But if you have a big thing, it's okay to do so. But that's not what the text is saying. What Paul is really saying about trivial, he's using it in a sarcastic way. He's saying no matter how big your grievance against a fellow Christ follower is, it's trivial compared to shaming the name of Christ. It's trivial compared to dragging the church into a secular court. Protect the name of Christ even if verses 7 and 8, you are wronged and you are defrauded. The fact that Paul uses the word wrong and defraud tells me that this could be painful, this can be costly, it's not insignificant, and yet Paul says compared to shaming the name of Christ, it is utterly trivial. Now I think we would all say that this is a hard teaching, especially in our litigious society. We are a society that stands up for our rights, makes sure that no one takes advantage of us. And if you try to, I'll see you in court. My lawyer will be talking to your lawyer, and my lawyer is better than your lawyer. This is a difficult passage, is it not? And yet all passages are inspired by God. I think of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, a passage I'll be preaching on early next year. It says this, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
I'm thankful that so many of you believe that all of Scripture is breathed by God. And all of Scripture is to be obeyed by us. That we are to be found in accordance with the Lord. Even the hard sayings of Jesus. I would say that today's text might be one of those hard sayings that God's Spirit directed Paul to write to you and to me. Let me pick up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I want to read verses 1 to 8. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. I think the background to today's text is helpful. First century southern Corinth southern Athens, southern Greece, was actually more litigious than our society. I know that's hard to believe, but we know that for a fact. In fact, on your 60th birthday, you were made a defender or some kind of arbitrator or prosecutor. We have extant evidence to say that your 60th year all year long, you had to serve in the court. And so they said every southern Greece citizen was a lawyer. What would happen is this. You see, lawsuits were not just an art form. They were a means to increase one's economic status. And so you would regularly look for someone who had more than you. And you would find a grievance against them. And then you would take that person to court in order to unload their wealth into your house. And so this was so prevalent that for the 60th year of everyone's life, they had to serve the entire year in the court system. Now, let's suppose that I found something that I wanted to sue you about. The courts would then give me someone as my defender and someone as your defender, and we would go at it and the two would arbitrate on our behalf, and then they would issue a mediation or a judgment. Let's suppose I lost. Well, I don't want to lose, so I appeal to a jury trial. We are told, I can't believe this, but we are told that the average jury trial had 40 jurors. You only had to be 30 years old to be a juror, and you were a juror on a regular basis. So let's suppose I lost the one-on-one. -on -one. I appeal to a jury trial. Maybe there's 30 jurors, maybe 35, I don't know. And I lose again. I have the right to appeal yet one more time. And this, I assume, is historical exaggeration. 
But the records tell us in that highest level of appeal, there are between 200 and 2,000 jurors for a trial. Now again, I'm assuming that that is exaggeration, but the idea is that there are a lot of jurors listening to me litigating against you. I remember a few years ago, I received a letter in the mail. It was my civic duty, Marathon County, was asking me to go to court to uh, present myself as a potential juror. I got there, and maybe there were 20 of us. And we were asked some questions, and they got down to about 12 of us. And then we sat through a 20- or 30-minute trial. It was a young guy. He was probably around 20. He was being tried for, I believe, his third DUI. The evidence was just overwhelming. <coughs> they had scientific evidence. They had, they had all sorts of stuff. He had been driving three times the legal limit. It was clear that he was guilty. When the trial was over, we were sent into a room, and we were told to pick a presiding juror, a captain, and I was elected. I don't appreciate my fellow jurors for that at all. But I thought, you know what? <laughs> this is like five minutes. This is open and shut. I've seen like Perry Mason on TV. I know what to do. I'm an expert at this kind of stuff. So I said, you know what? We're just going to have a straw poll because I knew it was going to be 12 to 0. The guy is guilty. And it was 6 to 6. I couldn't believe it. How could anyone find this person not guilty? So I said, you know, those who believe he's not guilty, why don't you give the evidence to the rest of us so we can all be on the same page? And what I heard from each person who declared the young man not guilty was this. Who hasn't driven drunk? We need to cut him a little slack. Now, as far as I understood the law, we were not determining whether the law was good or bad. We also were not determining if we had bad behavior in the past that we still felt guilty for in the present. We were there to determine, did he follow the law or did he break the law? But we stayed there like all day long. I am personally convinced that we would have been there the next day except nobody wanted to come back. So in the last few minutes, everyone agreed on the guilt of this young man. And there were only 10 or 12 of us. Can you imagine a jury trial with 40 or 200 or 2,000? Oy vey, no thank you whatsoever. But that's what was going on in the Gentile aspect of Corinth. The Jewish aspect of Corinth was quite different. The Jews had practiced synagogue justice actually for a long time, about 400 years. They had rightly determined that they were covenant people, that they were God-chosen people, that God had gifted his people with wisdom, and therefore they ought to be able to adjudicate the conflicts among their people. And so they had created the Sanhedrin, which means assembly or sitting one, and the high priest was the person who presided over the highest of situations that were brought to the Sanhedrin. And the lower ones were pushed to the local churches 
or the local synagogues. This had been going on for 400 years. For 400 years, the Jews refused to bring their disputes between or before the local magistrates. That was true whether it was Babylon or made of Persia or the Roman Empire. Rome, for its part, liked it. Rome said, hey, if they can handle their disputes, we don't have to. And so Rome let the Jews handle all their disputes except for ones that end in the death penalty. So when Jesus is tried, who is he tried before? The Sanhedrin, right? He's tried before the Sanhedrin. It's an important case, so the high priest presides. But when they want to put Jesus to death, they can't do it. They need to go to Pilate. They need to go to Rome because only Rome can put someone to death. This then is the climate of 1 Corinthians 6. This is the situation to which Paul interacts. And he writes to a church in which the Greeks will litigate for anything and the Jews will keep it all internally. And he actually sides with the Jews. He says, you know, when you have a dispute between brethren, when you have a dispute between believers, you should not be going to the secular magistrates. Are you not God's covenant people? Have you not been given the wisdom to handle the situation? Would you shame the name of Christ? Would you shame the church of Christ by taking disputes that you ought to be able to handle and bringing them over to the magistrates. And just in case you and I are unsure that he's talking about believers, look at verses 1 and 5. Verse 1, he says, court cases between one another. That is between Christ's followers. Verse 5, he uses the euphemism brothers, believers. Verse 1, he says that we are saints. Saints are not dead people that some sincerely but worthlessly pray to, hoping that they can somehow intervene in our lives. Saints are we who know Christ. If you, I, we have come to the point where we know that we are sinners and sin will keep us from a holy God, and we confess our sin, agree with God and the power of God's Spirit, we begin to turn from our sin, and we accept Jesus' death, as the sole payment of our sin and his resurrection is evidence of life after the grave and we believe by faith in Jesus, we are given eternal life and we are called saints. And Paul says saints should not be taking their court cases in front of the magistrates. He says in verse 5, a dispute between the brothers should not happen within us. In fact, he says in verses 7 and 8, it's better that you and I be defrauded. It's better that we be wronged than sue one another in a court case. In fact, that's what the word ecclesia, church, means. Ek is out. Ecclesia means call. We are called out from the normal course of life. <coughs> what was the normal course of life? In Corinth, sue one another, elevate one's financial status, take litigation beyond an art form to a means of securing financial freedom. The church is called out from that. 
That's not how we ought to act. Now when we read this called out of, it doesn't mean that we are holier than thou. We should never be. It doesn't mean we look down our noses at people. We should never act that way. It doesn't mean that we somehow think we're better than others. Of course, we are sinners like others. It just means that there are certain actions that ought not to be found within the church. One of which is that believer sues fellow believer for personal gain. Paul says, suffer wrong, be defrauded. He says in verse 1, settle a dispute between the brothers. Don't dare to go to law before the unrighteous. I love the way a former Supreme Court justice who is now deceased writes. He says this, I think that 1 Corinthians 6 has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as the parish priest, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, must be slow to sue. Well stated by a former Supreme Court justice. Well, in addition to a former Supreme Court justice, Paul says, speaking for God, that it is better that we be defrauded than we take someone who knows Christ to court. Now let's think about this. Let's suppose you remodel your kitchen. Now we're getting personal. And you hire a Christ follower, a carpenter, and he or she does what they think is outstanding work. And when they're done, they give you a bill. And you don't really dispute the bill, you dispute the work. They think it's their best craft, and you think it's shoddy craftsmanship. And you can't agree. And what's the temptation? Small claims court, right? But what does the text say? Find a Christ follower. A woman, a man who's mature in Christ. Agree that you will arbitrate before that woman, that man, or perhaps at a Christian counseling center, a professional Christian arbitrator, agree that you will present the evidence and that both sides will accept the mediation. That's what Paul says. But it's a hard teaching because what are we used to? Our rights. We want our rights and Paul wants the protection of the church. God says the protection of the church is more important. Let me read verses 4 and 5. So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? And then he says something very interesting. Verses 2 and following. He says, don't you know Christ's followers? That you're going to judge the world and you're going to judge angels. We assume fallen angels. Now this is interesting. Are we presently judging the world? No. Are we presently judging fallen angels? No. And then when we get to Revelation 20, when the world and the fallen angels are cast into the lake of fire, are we judging them then? No. So when are we judging them? 
Sorry, my all-millennial friends, there's only one possible answer, isn't there? The millennial kingdom. It must exist in order for us to judge the world and for us to judge fallen angels. But that's really not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is this. God considers us capable to judge the world and capable to judge fallen angels if we have that capability empowered by God's Spirit, why aren't we using it in lawsuits to avoid lawsuits among the brethren? Well, let's think of a few concluding application points. First, the text is not referring to areas where we must interact with law. It's not referring to that. We don't have to sue. I never need to sue you. The law doesn't require it. You do not need to sue me. The law does not require it. It's referring not to things where the law must be called, but where we have an option to avoid the law. So the application is not when it comes to child abuse or sex abuse or spousal abuse. In those situations, we rightly, immediately inform the legal proceedings. We call in the police. We should. It is our obligation. Some of you may not realize it, but I'm a mandatory reporter, like certain medical personnel or certain teachers. And so in the course of 30 years of pastoring, I have been by law required to report what I have come across. But even if I weren't a mandatory reporter, it is a moral obligation to report to the law what ought to be reported to the law. So this text is not talking about avoiding first responders at all costs. It's not that. In fact, we need to protect the innocent. That's a kingdom value. Second, this text actually is not talking about lawsuits between believers and an organization or corporation. Let's suppose that there is a need for a lawsuit against an insurance company. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying let's suppose that needs to happen. This text is not referring to that. There's no way that an insurance company is going to agree to a binding arbitration by a Christ follower Right? That, that, that's ludicrous. So the text is not referring to that. The text is not referring to divorce. Now we can all agree that God tells us if we're married, pray for our marriage, work at our marriage, invest in our marriage. Don't say, oh, you know what? I might be happier outside of the marriage, so I'm just going to walk away. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But you might find yourself before a judge because your spouse will not honor the marriage vows. This text is really not referring to that either because that would be against anything you, I, could control. Fourth, the text is telling us it is better to suffer loss than sue one another before a secular court. If we have a conflict that's financial, 
find an arbitrator. Find a Christian mediator, a wise, godly woman or man, and agree to present the case and for their decision to be binding. That's a kingdom value, and that's what the text is all about. Fifth, I think the text is teaching me that winning is not the penultimate goal in my life. Glorifying God is the penultimate goal. In this regard, I think of Matthew 18, 21 to 22. You remember Peter comes to uh, Jesus and says, Lord, how often must I forgive my brother who sins against me? (coughs) Shall I forgive him seven times? And I love Jesus' response. Whoa! Seven times? Nice job. That's like eight times more than Jeff will forgive. I like that. Very good, Peter. It's not what Jesus says. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, not seven times, but 77 or seven times 70, 490 times. Why do you get the two different numbers? Because actually you write them both the same way in Greek, and so you can come out with two possibilities in the text. But the point is, and I get to 78, and I say, ah, you have crossed the line, no more forgiven. Or I get to uh, 7 times 70, 491, and then I say, you're, you're toast. That's not the point. The point is that I learned to forgive. I learned to forgive. I learned to forgive. Winning is not the penultimate value. A kingdom principle is that God's glory is more important than my rights. And that's the final point. What would Jesus want you, me, to do? To protect the name of Christ. To protect the reputation of the church. To be an ecclesia. Out of, called out of, the normal way the world does things. We do things for God's glory first and foremost. Even if that means here on earth we are wronged or we are defrauded. Verse 35 of our text says that Jesus will forgive me to the same degree that I offer forgiveness to others. Now, I don't know about you, but I need a boatload of forgiveness. So if I am going to ask the Lord to constantly forgive me, I need to have a charitable, forgiving spirit towards others. That is a kingdom principle. Let's pray. Father God, uh, it's always very difficult when someone takes advantage of us, defrauds us, is unfair to us. And Father, we rightly have righteous indignation and anger. But help us to channel that well and to respond in a godly fashion rather than seeking what is best for us. Let's seek what is biblically accurate and true and what is glorifying to your name. Help us to live that not only when it comes to lawsuits, but in all of our life. For your glory and our betterment, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.